Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called The Life of Christ, a study in the Gospel of Luke. In this series, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Thanks for joining us. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 37 and go to the first couple verses of chapter 12. And if you're getting used to your Bible, Luke's about three-fourths of the way back. If you're using one of the black Bibles that's in the seat rack there, we'd love for you to be a first-hander with the Bible. In the black Bible, it's page 726. And today, uh, we are, if you haven't been with us, we've been in this series, as our banners say on the outside, the life of Christ. We're going through the gospel, the book of Luke in the New Testament. Why? Because we want to be with Jesus so we can learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. And uh, he really does want to help us this. And so today, I want to talk to you about character. Character. That's really what this passage is about. And so I want you just to see how this relates. And uh, if you um, are, uh, are not aware, this is a tough passage. Jenny already said it. Uh, this is not a passage that if you were looking to feel really warm and fuzzy, this one will not, you know, send you out that way. But Jesus wants to talk to us. And if you're following along in the notes, here's what I want you to see. Jesus calls in and up the religious leaders of his day. Jesus calls in and up the religious leaders of his day. If you would turn your notes over to the back side of the notes there, um, I want to show you something. The last couple years, the pastors have been going through coaching, and uh, the coaches have been helping us uh, learn some things, and one of the things they've been using is this quadrant that we have here on the back. At the top of that paper there, do you see underneath the grace and truth matrix, you see a Bible verse there, John 1, 14. Would you mind reading that with me out loud, please? Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. Did you see how it's both? He's full of grace, and he's full of truth. Not one or the other. Both. High grace, high truth. Powerful combination. So as we think about this, as you look at this matrix here, high grace and high truth. And uh, so you'll notice that uh, the different quadrants here. If you look into the upper right corner of the quadrant here, you'll notice that it's called call in. And this is where Jesus lived all the time. High grace, high truth. Uh, the religious leaders of his day lived in call out. And uh, call out is a much more negative. It's low grace, so there's not as much love, but it's super high truth. Maybe you've been around someone that's in call out. Then on the left here, the lower left, of course, if you have low grace and low truth, you really don't give a rip about anybody. It's called checkout. And then when you have high grace and low truth, like, like you really don't want to tell someone the honest truth, let's just hang out, okay? But today I want to talk to you about the two right side quadrants. And the reason I want to talk to you about this is because in this passage today, six times, Jesus is going to say, woe to you. And when we hear that, most of us say, I really don't like when someone talks to me like that. That's just the honest truth. A few weeks ago, I was in... Uh, uh, church service with our son and daughter-in-law and uh, over in Indiana and the pastor made an observation that I've been thinking about a lot. He was preaching from the book of Proverbs where they give some challenging Proverbs at times and he says, why is it that we have a hard time with hard truth? 
And he said, it's because we have become an over-affirmed culture, a fragile culture. We can't handle criticism. We can't handle a hard word. We just want to hear, just tell me how good I am. Just tell me I'm fine. And we have an over-affirmed culture. So this is a challenging passage for us because our culture has already set us up to have difficulty listening to something challenging. But here's the other reason why I want to bring this up is because most of us, when we hear, woe to you, we hear Jesus going, I want to get you good. I'm calling you out. And that is not Jesus' heart. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Whenever Jesus put his finger on something, whenever he said something like that, the tone was always call in. Our coaches have actually said, you can say call in, and lately they've been actually saying call up too. So Jesus was one who called in, called up. Why? He called us into his light. He called us into a relationship of intimacy with him. So I bring this up because out to the left here, you'll see some other scripture passages that I put, like Mark 1.15, Jeremiah 18.7-12, through 12, Ezekiel 18, 30 through 32, and Luke 19, 41 and 42. Just take Mark 1, 15. I think we have it here on the screen. This is how he started his whole ministry. Listen to his voice here. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Read the next sentence with me. Repent and believe the good news. In other words, change your mind. Change the direction of your life and believe the good news that I've brought to you. I'm calling you in. Then you see some passages in Jeremiah 18 and Ezekiel where God shares his heart and he says, look, the reason I'm warning you, the reason I'm challenging you is because I want you to win. I want you to know the goodness uh, working in your life that I have for you. Luke 19, 41 through 44 is Jesus riding in Jerusalem and weeping. He's saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I have wanted so much to have a relationship with you, but you didn't want it. You didn't realize the time of your visitation has come. And now what's in store for you is not good. Oh, man. So he is a call-in God, a call-up God. And when you hear woe later, we're going to explain more about woe. I want you to hear that tone instead of call out, which is just about overpowering you and not helping you. So the next thing I want you to see, if you're following along in the notes, is that the religious leaders of Jesus' day that we're going to look at, they've put more emphasis on reputation than character. What Jesus is going to point out is that they have put more emphasis on reputation than character. I don't know how familiar you are with college basketball coaches, but one of the most famous from a different era is John Wooden. He's passed away now. But he was an incredible man. He's still in the influence of his life is still rippling with guys like Bill Walton and others that are retired basketball players. But here's what he taught his players. And even if they didn't embrace his faith, people like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and others, they respected him because of what he said. Uh, he said this, be more concerned with your character than your reputation. Because your character is what you really are while your reputation is merely what others think you are. Now, uh, if, if you and I decide to go after reputation over character, there's some real disadvantages. I'll give you an example. 
when our daughter Natalie, who's grown, married now, out of the house, when she was like two years old, she was in the church nursery back at the old building where we used to be. And uh, one day in the nursery there, she was picking her nose. And uh, one of the church uh, nursery uh, workers just said, oh, Natalie, let's not do that. She said, who taught you to do that? And she said, my dad. <laughs> now, see, if I'm interested in my reputation, it just went out the window. <laughs> see, reputation can go up and down like that. Character is who we really are. Character, as D.L. Moody said, is what you and I are in the dark. Character is who we really are when no one else is watching. Character. And Jesus was calling them in to character. He was calling them up to character, but they were not interested. They were more interested in reputation than character. So there's something here for us. So let's just pray that the Lord can teach us today through this passage. Now, God, I pray, help us be more about character. It is so easy to take the shortcut of reputation. I admit that freely. And so help us to really want to be genuine with you, God. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's walk through this passage. And when we get to verse 39, you see that first gray box? Would you be ready to read that with me out loud? So, when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. We've talked about Pharisees before. Our tendency, if we've been around churches for a while, is to always think of the Pharisees as the bad guys that wore black hats. But that's not how they would have been thought of in their culture. They would have been deeply respected. These are the kind of guys you would have wanted your daughter to marry in lots of ways because they were men that were impressive as far as their passion for God, their commitment to memorizing the scripture and trying to obey all the law of God. And there's there lots of things. They were super highly respected. So one of these religious leaders invites Jesus to the house and he's eating with him. We pick it up. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. This does not mean, by the way, that he didn't wash his hands before he ate. Uh, when I was a kid in the 1970s, there was a TV commercial that was popular that time that said, wash your hands, Jeffrey. And all my buddies at school would say that to me all day long. <laughs> it was very irritating. But the idea here is we're not talking about that, okay? We're talking about ceremonial washing. So I'll go on. And verse 39 says, then the Lord said to him, now would you read with me what's in the gray box? Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but... Inside, you are full of greed and wickedness. So you Pharisees, now then you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish. Let me go on. Verse 40. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. Pretty hot. Pretty hot. Let's look at those first 
things that he says, including the first three woes. He uses these word pictures. Do you notice that? He says the cup and the dish. That's something we can all picture. So when you're following along in the notes, he talks about dishes, and here's what he says. Here's what you're like. You're like dishes. You clean the outside, but inside you're unclean. You clean the outside, but inside you're unclean. Last night, Trish helped me uh, so I could put something on the screen here. I just wanted to show you just how clean she gets the dishes at our house. You can see here, this is the cup. But then if you look inside it, here's actually how it looks. And uh, it's not because she didn't take time to wash it. It's because we were doing this for an illustration. The point is, is it's unclean. It's not something that you'd want to hand to someone else and say, hey, have something to drink here. So this idea of clean and unclean was huge for the Pharisees. How do I make myself clean before God? And now, let me show you another passage in Mark that has to do with this ceremonial hand-washing and other things that they did. So Mark 7, verses 1 through 7 says this, The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed ceremonially. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips. Now listen to this last line. But their hearts, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. So he says this about this whole thing, and then he goes on in verse 20, down in chapter, in chapter uh, 7, and says this. He went on, what comes out of a person, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So Jesus is saying, look, you're completely caught up with the outside. You're washing your hands. You're trying to make yourself clean that way. Problem is, the whole time, your hearts have gotten miles from God. So you misunderstand everything that was written in God's law was meant to draw you towards God. It was meant to call you in. It was meant to call you up. And what you've gotten involved in is moving you away from God. Come on. Come on. Don't be like someone who washes the outside of a cup but skips the inside. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? He's urging them to live from the inside out. And it's very easy for us to turn the Christian life into appearances. I don't know about you, but the longer I've lived, I've realized that Jesus is not interested in me having the appearance of becoming more like Jesus. He wants us to become more like Jesus. The problem is they were interested in a skin-deep faith rather than going all the way to their character. And we've been 
reading this the last few weeks up here on the banners. Do you mind reading it with me again? This is why our mission is aimed at becoming more than just doing. So let's read it. We are fighting shallow Christianity by becoming H3 disciples of Jesus who are humble, humble, sorry, and hospitable. And you know, I better get this caught. I better catch on, huh? Who are hungry, humble, and hospitable. So how do you and I go after character? These are some of the ways we're learning. So how about woe? Woe to you. If you're following along, I want you to see that it's an expression of regret, not vindictiveness. It's an expression of regret, not of vindictiveness. That's why some of your translations may say, how terrible it will be for you. Like if you keep going in this direction, it's not going to turn out well. Woe to you. There is, as we saw in chapter 6 when we studied it, and Jesus said, woe's there. It is this idea of compassionate concern. Grief. You cannot grieve over someone if you don't love them, if you don't care about them. You wouldn't waste the energy. Jesus is speaking this. He's saying, woe to you. Come on. I read this this week. It was very helpful to me. It says, he said this, It says that, um, I'm sorry, I, uh, here it is. When Jesus announced these quite formal woes, he wasn't simply saying he disliked such attitudes. The detailed outward observance that left the heart untouched, the piety that boosted self-importance, the pollution that appeared as clean and wholesome. It wasn't simply that he happened to disapprove of the objectionable practices of these other groups. It was rather that he could see where they would lead that they would pull down on their heads a devastation to come. And so Jesus cares enough to call in, and he says, woe to you. Now, what's the first woe? If you're following along, he uses, again, these ideas of pictures. The first is a picture of giving. He says, you tithe, if you're following along, yet neglect justice and loving God. Do both. You tithe, yet neglect justice and loving God. Do both. What's tithe? Tithe means to give the first 10% of all that you earn or all that you harvested of your grain. Now, what the picture he gives here, and this actually went on, but he, he points it out, is he says, you guys are so into performing for God that what you've done is you've turned this into a game. So he said that the Old Testament never required that you even go out into your little garden and pick off the herbs there. It's just meant from your grain and stuff like that. But here's how extra credit you are. You go out to your garden and you go, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Oh, and you pull the tenth leaf off and say, this is for God. And he says, meanwhile, where you're paying attention to all these little things, you're forgetting the majors. The majors are justice. Where is your heart for the poor? Where is your heart for the marginalized, the widow, the orphan? Where is your heart? Where is your heart for God? You've completely neglected love for God. You don't love God. You love yourself. You love your performance. You love your reputation more than you love God. Oh, man. This would have been powerful. Notice he says, look, you need to understand, tithing is still a great idea. God still wants you to honor him with your resources, first thing. But you've turned that into something that is far from what he intended. And he also wants you to make sure you pay attention to justice and the love of God at the same time. 
Second picture, the second woe is he uses this picture of seats, if you're following along. Seats. And he says, you love the seats of honor, and you love being greeted in the marketplace as someone important. Now, friends, is it, is it wrong to enjoy being greeted warmly? No. What he's saying is, is this is what you live for. You use people. You use people to say, keep it coming, keep it coming, make me feel important. Look at me, look at me, instead of look at God. And so if you're following along, it's you love human praise more than God's praise. You love human praise more than God's praise. Anybody struggle with that like I do? It's easy to fall into that. It's easy to start taking the shortcut of saying, oh man, just keep all the affirmation, keep all the praise coming from people. God says, live for an audience of one. Look at uh, John 12, 42 and 43, what it says. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. When it got down to it, they said, I want that more than I want this. And that is the tension in all our hearts is what are we going to live for? Are we going to go for human praise over God's praise? Ultimately, what he says, who we really are, is what matters. Third woe is woe to you, and this is an interesting one, about graves. Actually, he calls them unmarked graves. And the idea here, if you're following along, is that your hypocrisy corrupts people more than you know. He's saying to these leaders, your hypocrisy corrupts people more than you know. This last one stung them more than you can imagine. Basically, he was saying to them, look, your whole job is to help the people of Israel, God's people, to be holy, to be clean, to be ceremonially uh, you know, right with God. And actually, the more time people spend with you, you make them unclean. Now, in the, let me read what this says here. It says, the third woe pictures the Pharisees for all their ceremonial cleanliness as actually typifying the worst sort of uncleanness. The Old Testament laws said a person who touched a grave was unclean, Numbers 19.16. Sometimes a body might be buried in an unmarked grave, causing an unwary traveler to become ceremonially unclean by walking over it. This is why, by the way, right before the Passover, when many, many Jewish people would be coming to Jerusalem, they whitewashed the tomb so that everybody could see, so that no one got ceremonially unclean accidentally. So... Jesus accused the Pharisees of actually being unmarked graves who made others unclean by their spiritual rottenness. Like unmarked graves hidden in a field, the Pharisees corrupted everyone who came in contact with them. That one hurt. And Jesus was not doing it again to be condescending. He was going, do you realize that if you keep living this kind of phony outward life where you're not paying attention to your character, that you will not ultimately be a blessing. You will not ultimately help people be right with God. You will, you will actually mess the whole thing up. Come on. Woe to you. How terrible it will be for you if you keep going this way in this kind of appearances life instead of character life. 
And so there's kind of an interesting moment here, kind of humorous actually in a way. Verse 45, one of the experts in the law answered him, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. That's an understatement. The experts in the law, a number of them were Pharisees. So what this guy's saying is, hey, we're actually in that group too, so like you're insulting us. But there were also experts in the law. What does that mean? It doesn't just mean that they had lawyers like we have attorneys today. These were religious lawyers. This meant that they were experts in how to interpret the law of God so that people could obey the law of God. And as they became more and more academic and stuff like that, more and more high-minded, they got farther and farther away from the people. So Jesus goes, okay, you just brought that up. Now I have some specific words for you experts in the law. And I bet the guy goes, remind me not to bring that up again with Jesus. All right? But notice that what happens, let me read further, uh, verse 46 and following. Jesus replied, and you experts in the law, Woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. And you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophet. And it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did when they killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that have been shed since the beginning of the world and from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. So, three more woes. Are you ready? The first one is burdens. The burdens. He says to him, look, in all of your interpreting the law, what you've actually done is you have turned it into such a confusing, burdening way to follow God. And so if you're following along, he says, you load people down, and what's worse, you won't help them. You don't just interpret the law in a way that they go, okay, that's how I can love God. Okay, that helps. No, you've got now caught up with so many trivial, minute details that they go, am I right with God? Am I not right with God? Am I clean? Am I unclean? I don't know anymore. I'm so confused. You burden them. You lay things on their backs that you don't even want to carry. Come on, what are you doing with your man-made stuff? What were these burdens? Well, let me just give you one example. In the fourth commandment of you shall keep the Sabbath holy. What does that mean? You shall not work on the Sabbath. What's that mean? Well, they had to define some of those things, rightly so. But here's some of the things that happened. The burdens were the details the Pharisees had added to God's laws. So they added instructions regarding how far a person could walk on the Sabbath. What kind of knots could a person tie and how much weight could be carried healing a person was considered unlawful work on the sabbath although rescuing a trapped animal was permitted 
Instead of teaching God's law so that people could love, understand it, and obey the God who gave it, they turned the law into a confused maze of do's and don'ts that had become a burden to the people. The legal experts refused to lift one finger to help the people. As experts, they probably found all kinds of ways to get themselves out from under the burden. And Jesus is bothered by this. He goes, look, God put you in a position to help people follow God. And now you have actually made it more difficult. You have weighed them down, and that was never God's intention with the law. It was meant to lift them up. It was meant to call them in, to call them up. And so he says, come on. And what's worse is you don't care about the people who you're serving like God does. I'm telling you what, if God said to me, Jeff, you do not care about the people you pastor, that would rip my heart, I can only imagine what some of these words it must have shocked them because they felt like they were doing the people a real favor and they were really honoring God. Jesus says, underneath it all, it's not the way it is. So they had some soul searching to do. Pastor Brian Schwarberg spoke a few weeks ago. Don't you love that guy? One of the things he told me is he, he once heard Pastor Mark Batterson say something like this before he preaches. Oh, Lord, help me. Help people. I found myself praying that more often. If I'm more concerned with whether or not you're impressed with me or this message, instead of helping you live the Christian life, then something's wrong. It's not what God intended. And Jesus goes after that. Aren't you glad he did? The next one is monuments. Monuments or memorials, uh, another use of the word tombs. It talks about the prophet's tombs. If you're following along, he says, you also reject God's messengers. Now, this is an interesting thing. He says, you know, you guys make efforts to go where all the dead prophets are, and you decorate their tombs, and you say to yourselves, boy, if we were alive in the time when these guys were prophets, we would have never killed them like our ancestors did. And he says, first of all, the minute you admit that your ancestors are those people, you give yourself away. You're related to them more than you know. You actually think you wouldn't be like that, but right now, you're rejecting God's messengers left and right. You rejected John the Baptist. You're rejecting me. Look earlier in this chapter. You are going to reject the apostles that I send to you. You're going to hound them and go from city to city. And because of that, you have the exact same DNA spiritually. Come on. God's reaching out to you. God's warning you, and you're rejecting him. You're, you're hanging on to all of your man-made rules and all of your traditions and all of your pride, and you're missing God's visitation. Come on. Wow. Notice this. In Matthew 23, he actually gives seven woes instead of six. But look up from Matthew 23. He says, therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers of religious law. But you will kill some by crucifixion and you will flog others with whips in your synagogues, chasing them from city to city. As a result, you will be held responsible for the murder of all godly people of all time, from the murder of righteous Abel to the murder of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you killed in the temple between the sanctuary and the altar. I tell you the truth. This judgment will fall on this very generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. 
How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. Can you feel his heart? But you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned and desolate, for I tell you this, you will never see me again until you say blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You have a heart that is resistant to God, even though you handle God's law all the time. The last one is the key. The key. He says, you have taken away the key of knowledge. If you're following along, he says, you're not entering and you're hindering others. You are meant to help people open the door so that people could come in. And instead, you've taken away the key of knowledge. In Matthew 23, he says, you have slammed the door in people's faces. You have shut the door. You're actually blocking people from getting close to God. And as a result, you're not getting in, and they're not getting in either. You're hindering them, you're holding back, you're blocking. Oh my goodness, I don't know about you, but the thought that my lack of character would cause someone else to be hindered in their interest for God is a heavy, heavy responsibility. And it's something that can be done by you or me, but are people more drawn to God because we interact with them or less? Are we actually, and so what does he mean the key to knowledge? Over in John 5, 39 and 40, he uses this same idea. He says, you study the scriptures diligently he says to the religious leaders, because you think that in them you have eternal life. All day long you study the scriptures. You think that these are the key. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Friends, Jesus is the key of knowledge. He is the one that enables us to know life. And are we refusing to come to him? They were. He says, woe to you. And when he was done saying these things, how did they respond? Did they say, oh, thank you, Jesus, for calling us in? Let's see. Verse 53. When Jesus went outside... The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. That word catch him is the idea of hunting an animal. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Here's one of the reasons to go after character. Because one day, whatever we really are, will come to light. Whatever we really are, will come to light. So, here's the first question if you're interested in responding from the inside out differently than they did. Am I more concerned about my reputation or character? That's the first question if you're following along. Am I more concerned about my reputation or character? Revelation 3.1, there's a sentence at the end of this verse that I've been thinking about a lot. Jesus writes to the church in Sardis, and here's what he says to them. You have a reputation of being alive, but you 
are dead. People in town think you're a happening church. They think you've got something going on with me. It's not so. You're dead. You have completely lost your heart for me. Wow. What am I more interested in? It will come to light. Romans 2.16 says this. Do we have it there on the screen? It says, and this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. So the next question is, where is Jesus concerned enough to warn and call me in? Where in my life is Jesus concerned enough to warn and call me in? Friends, I have no idea what he might have been doing in your heart this week, what he might be doing right now this very moment. But I can tell you as I study this scripture, when he said, inside you are full of greed and wickedness and pride and all these different things, man, I'm telling you what, I could feel the heat of his words convicting and cleansing me, or at least attempting to cleanse me and finding me out. And again, back about six years ago, I wrote down on a piece of paper my character deficiencies. I don't know what yours are, but those things that if they were to put up on the screen right now so that you saw what was inside my life, it would humble me greatly. You know, I've been thinking about the election you know why so very few people run for office? Because whatever you really are is going to come out. People will look for it. They will look for dirt. They will look for that. You know, we live in an age of modern medical technology. We have some people in our church that are skilled at using scans and scopes that help us see inside our bodies like never before. But there is some places that no scan, no scope will ever be able to find, but God does. God knows exactly what's going on inside us. And the question is, will we let him speak to it? Will we let him deal with it? Why? To ruin us, to destroy us? No, to heal us. To do something different. Where is it in you? What do you need to think about this morning so that you're not going after reputation but character? And here's the last thought. Lord, I want to take to heart your call in. Lord, I want to take to heart your call-ins. Now, you notice how they responded, the religious leaders. Did they take it to heart? No, they took offense. And when Jesus speaks to us, we can take offense, we can blow him off, or we can take it to heart. People that take it to heart are practicing the posture of humility. When you and I, the Bible tells us, are proud and stubborn, God will always oppose us. I'm glad he does. But when we're humble, the Bible says he gives grace. And I want to end with just a good news story for you. Did you know that two of the people that heard him speaking that day took it to heart? We know in the scriptures. Their names are Joseph and Nicodemus. Look at these verses in John 19 as we wrap this up. Later... Joseph of Arimathea, this is after Jesus had died on the cross. Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. In other words, he was an insider with the Jewish leaders, but he had also come to trust in Jesus. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. 
He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. You can read about this in John 3. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, taking Jesus' body. The two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs, and they buried Jesus, and Joseph gave his own grave that Jesus might be buried in a rich man's grave. They listened. And they said, you're shining your light on my character. Guilty as charged. I humble myself. Come in. Do what only you can do on the inside of me. And begin a work that will build me into a person of character more like you, Lord, than like me. So I want to just give you a time of space before we sing. And understand that Jesus is still saying today, repent and believe the good news for your bad news. Some of us need to trust Christ. We've been resisting him or rejecting him. And today is the day of salvation. You could have a new character. You can become a new person in Christ. That's good news. You can become clean forever. Some of us have trusted Christ and we've let our character go in some ways and he's putting his finger on it to change that so we become the real deal. And it's painful and it's not easy, but it's worth it. What does he want to say to you? Let him speak to you.